All right, good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter? Just to let everyone know, most of you know this already, but it's been three months since we were officially in 1 Peter. We got as far as chapter 4, verse 10, which reads, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we use that verse as a springboard to launch us into a study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's taken us roughly three months. And now since we have been away from 1 Peter for all that time, I think we need to review tonight before we pick up our study and continue, and we'll probably be in 1 Peter just another two or three weeks, but let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> Relax. We won't take several months to go through it again, but... When we first started 1 Peter, we, um, we noticed how that Peter opened up his epistle by encouraging us to keep our eyes on the coming of the Lord. Now, that's very important. Uh, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians that it's so important that we keep our eyes focused on things that are not seen, the eternal things, and get our eyes off of the things that are seen, material things. He said, this is the only way we can really, by God's grace and power, we can endure. And of course, in Paul's day, talking about enduring, that meant enduring physical persecution, martyrdom. Many of the saints had been killed. So we're talking about a serious thing. Uh, but Paul said that the way we are going to get through it is to keep our eyes fixed on things above, eternal things. Jesus is coming. That's what Peter's doing, by the way. He encouraged us to keep our eyes on the Lord, on eternal things, on the Lord's coming, because in so doing, God will give us strength and grace to endure the trials we're going to face in life. So in 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 3, Peter uh, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation would be the rapture, the Lord saving us from this present evil age when he comes for us. And when you read those words, you get excited uh, about what is waiting for us. Uh, what, you know, what is... God got for us. Eye has not seen, neither has ear heard. Uh, that you know, Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But he's given us a little peek through the power of the Spirit within us. Now, as we came to verse 13 of chapter 1, we saw the word therefore. Several that we've looked at through the course of our study so far. When you see the word therefore, especially as Peter uses it, it meant that uh, he was now going to make application to our lives based on the spiritual truth he had just gotten done talking about. And so he's talking about us, you know, keeping our eyes focused on the eternal, on the inheritance that is awaiting for us. As we're waiting, we have to live, though. I mean, we're looking. We don't want to be so heavenly minded. We're not any earthly good. Now, there's a, you know, some people say that that's true. I kind of flip it around a little bit and say, well, if you're not heavenly minded, you're not going to be earthly good. So there's a balance, though. Okay, we don't want to be Millerites in the 1800s. 
they believed the Lord was coming on a certain date, and they all sold everything, put on white robes, went up on top of a mount. Uh, I was in Illinois, and, uh, you know, waited for the Lord's coming. Well, he didn't come, and they got very discouraged, and they, a lot of them turned against God. But we're not called to isolate ourselves. We're called to keep our eyes on things to come, but to occupy, as Jesus said. Continue to live our lives. And that's what Peter says. Peter, being very practical. Hey, focus on your inheritance that's coming. Okay, what God has prepared for us. But while you're focusing on the eternal, you got to live in the temporal. And so he said, therefore, verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, your B.C. days. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. When Peter commanded us to gird up the loins of our minds and be sober, he was saying that we are not to put ourselves under the influence of anything the God of this world, the devil will try to use to intoxicate us with. In other words, to lower our resistance to sin by, you know, messing with our ability to think clearly. That's what happens when you're under the influence of alcohol, right? Uh, we remember those days. Uh, hopefully nobody's still fighting that. But in those days, of course, we drank, then became under the influence of the alcohol, which clouded our reason. We weren't able to think clearly. It lowered our resistance to sin and things we would probably not do sober. And the devil uses things in this world to intoxicate. In fact, as we have said many times, the mind is ground zero for spiritual warfare. If Satan can control your thinking, he can control your living. Mark it down. Don't ever forget that. If Satan can control your thinking, he can control your living. And as the God of this world, he has designed everything in this world to appeal to our fallen fleshly nature. I'll read to you 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, where John said, because John says exactly what Peter's admonishing us to be careful about. Here's what John says. He said, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, and he's talking about the fallen world system that Satan controls. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world, this fallen world system. And guys, Satan will use a variety of things. And John nails it. He just classifies them into three groups. The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. A lot of things fall into those three categories, but they cover pretty much everything. John is telling us that the devil is going to try to use these things to put us under the influence or to intoxicate us using, listen, the cares and lusts of this world in an attempt to control our thinking and these are desires okay our desires i mean what do we want to desire do we want to desire the things of the old life still the world or do we want to desire the things of god which are uh, connected to the new our new life in christ this is the battle this is the struggle that this is spiritual warfare but make no mistake about it the devil uses all kinds of things to entice to intoxicate us but it's all designed 
by him to lead us away from God and to get us to go back to the old life we once lived before we were saved, when the devil was our master, when we were his slaves, living in a fallen world, and we didn't know any better. We just, you know, imbibed all that the world had. That was our life. The sad thing about it is, and this is why Peter's admonishing this so heavily, and all the writers of the New Testament do this, it's sad when a Christian now, who has been delivered from that old life, slides back into it. We think about Demas. Remember what Paul the Apostle, Demas was one of Paul's guys. He was on Paul's missionary team. But at one point, Paul laments Demas has forsaken us having loved this present world. Does that mean that Demas was never saved and went back to the only life he really knew? Or did it mean he was a backslidden believer? I don't know. I don't know. But there's a lot of Christians, and you know them, that used to walk strongly with God, that were, that were filled with the Spirit, that were in ministry. And whatever we don't know sometimes what happens, but there was a cooling off. The passion began to wane for the things of God, and a desire for the things of the world began to take the place. And uh, many of them have went back into the world, and sometimes for years. Peter is telling us, look, don't fall into that. He's reminding us that God has redeemed us out of that old life. And now we are to live a new life for the Lord, a holy life, which means a separated life, um, seeing that we have been born again through the Holy Spirit. We're not the same people we once were. We are fundamentally different. We're new creations in Christ. Peter goes on to say at the end of chapter 1, verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And I'll just stop there. After talking about us being born of the Spirit, in other words, new creations in Christ, now Peter starts chapter 2 with the word, therefore, again, he is going to be making application now. He just got done talking about how we received God's word, we, we accepted the gospel, and we were born again of the Spirit. And now, therefore, laying aside all malice, because look, we're new creations now. We're not the same people we once were. Therefore, why would we want to live like the same old people that we once were? Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all e evil speaking, this is all the stuff of the old life, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, guys, now that we are born of the Spirit and new creations in Christ, we must live out that reality each and every day of our lives. It's not going to happen automatically. We have to live our Christian lives on purpose. Remember Daniel? He purposed in his heart. He was not going to defile himself with the king's food. You're not going to walk with God by accident. You can't put your Christianity on autopilot. Uh, you have to every day put the effort in to walk with God. And that's why it's called a walk. It implies movement and um, a will on your part to move with the Lord. And, uh, but every day we have to walk with the Lord. We have to live out the reality that we're new creations in Christ. And part of it that Peter mentions comes by drinking in the Word of God every day, because when we do, we, listen, grow thereby. There is no such thing as spiritual growth without the milk and the meat of the Word. And that's just all there is to it. 
Now in verse 11 of chapter uh, 2, Peter goes on to say, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. So just, you're not of this world anymore. It's not your home. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Now that's spiritual warfare again. The devil trying to stimulate our fallen nature to desire things that are contrary to God. Peter says, don't do that. Stay in the word. Fill your mind and heart with the word of God, because as you do, you will desire the things of God. This is a tug of war. This is a tug of war that we, we all know is real, but sometimes we don't, under, you know, we don't really think of it at times. You know, it's just, it, 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 guys, often for believers, it's not a, a battle between choosing between the good and the bad. It's a battle between choosing between the good and the best. It's a lot of things that are not evil that Christians can waste time with. But is what I'm wanting to do. I mean, sitting home tonight, which you guys didn't do, sitting home tonight and watching a game, okay, or last week, Shark Week or something. Is that, and there's a Bible study at church going on, is that the best use of my time? Watching Shark Week isn't evil. It's kind of cool. But tape it and come to church. Hear the word of God. That's the best, right? That's how you grow. So <laughs> verse 11 again, uh, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they, unbelievers, speak evil of you as, uh, against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter continues admonishing us as Christians to live lives of holiness and separation from the pollution of this world around us, which will not only, listen, honor God, but will also be a good witness to unbelievers. And see, that's the thing. We honor God by obeying God, because in the process we reflect his glory or we shine in our our walk uh that people might see we belong to the lord and he is glorified uh by our lives and unbelievers are taking note now, sure the devil's going to put into the hearts of unbelievers to just put christians down all the time okay they're phonies they're hypocrites blah 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 okay you've got to prove them wrong they're not going to come here usually you've got to go where they are you've got to be a light in the darkness you know, it's nice to hang out in the light with all the other Christians. But you know what? Most unbelievers are not going to set foot in the church. So the church has to go to where they are. That's our mission. Go into all the world, right? And be lights in the darkness and so on. So it, it's honoring God and we obey what he has said, but it also is a good witness to the unbelievers we come in contact with on a daily basis. And then he adds this command in verse 13. Again, there's that word, therefore. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Again, just by way of review, once we got saved, we went from children of Satan, 1 John 3, we went from children of Satan who were rebellious toward the will of God to children of God who are now submissive and obedient to his will and to his word, the word of God. In other words, guys, submission to God's authority, listen, submission to God's authority is what separates believers from unbelievers. Unbelievers who go to church give God lip service, but they really don't live their lives like they're under his authority. They do what they want pretty much. If they do pray, it's always to ask God to bless what they want to do. 
or what they want to have. But most of the time, even churchgoers, they don't live under God's authority. That's what separates believers from unbelievers. Now, as we have talked about in this study already, God is the supreme authority over all of his creation. That's true. But he has also delegated some of the, that authority to three main institutions which he created. Institutions that are essential for the function of human society. They are human government, the church, and marriage and family. Uh, marriage, of course, wives submitting to their husbands. Uh, family, children in, living under the parents' roof, uh, obeying both uh, mom and dad. But all three of these uh, institutions are vital to the health of any human society and all function, all three function under the principle of authority and submission. Without authority and submission, you have rebellion and anarchy. Those are not of God. Those are not of God. And as Peter has been admonishing us to live godly lives by obeying God's authority over us, he then turns, as we have looked at this, he then turns his attention to the institutions that God has created and, listen, delegated his authority to on the earth. Again, human government, the church, family, marriage. Peter, at one point, as he's talking about us submitting to God and honoring God and living for God, at one point, uh, and being a witness to unbelievers, at one point he then says, and look, you need to submit to the institutions God has ordained and created because he has delegated some of that authority that he has over all creation to these institutions. And we need to submit to these things, which, of course, are vital for the health of a society. And um, by submitting to ourselves to these uh, institutions, it glorifies God. But it also becomes a great witness to unbelievers who are rebellious by nature because they're children of the devil. Yet when we become children of God, the first thing God begins to do is break us of our pride and rebellion and begins to work in us a heart of submission to his will, to his word, because it honors him, of course, but it's also, a, as Peter said, it's also a good witness to those who are unbelievers. And then from there, Peter proceeds to tell us to be good citizens by obeying those that God has placed in authority over us in government, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Next, he admonishes slaves to respect and obey their earthly masters, chapter 2, 18 through verse 25. That could also apply today to bosses, uh, respecting your bosses. He then turns to the wives and says, Wives, you are to, to respect and submit to your husbands, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And finally, husbands are to submit to God in marriage by treating their wives the way the Lord has commanded the husbands, chapter 3, verse 7. As we come to chapter 3, verse 8, he now begins to bring this entire section to a close by saying, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. 
But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who, uh, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So again, Peter is making his case for the reality that once we are born again of the Spirit, we want to honor God by obeying all that he has said. Because not only is God glorified, but people have get a good witness then of what Christianity is really all about. Uh, there are so many people giving Christians and Jesus Christ ultimately a bad rap. Of course, Jesus said that the devil would sow tares among the wheat. He would come in and he would sow into churches a lot of religious unbelievers who are not really born again. They would talk the talk, they won't walk the walk. And uh, we see this all over the place. All through the New Testament, we're warned about these people. But um, it's so important that we as true believers, when we go out into the world, we don't partake. And he, you know, he says, look, this is how you used to live. This is how unbelievers still live. But, but don't live that way. Be of one mind. Be compassionate to each other. Love. Be tenderhearted and so on. Live the new life that you are in Christ. Because in so doing, God is glorified and people will see what Christians are really all about. Now, he talks about at the end of um, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, even if you should suffer. So just because you go out there and you live for the Lord and you're being a real good Christian, doesn't make you immune from persecution. Some Christians have that feeling that, well, if I go out and I live the way I should live, and all bad stuff will be kept from me. Read the book of Job, okay? <laughs> or look at Jesus' life, more importantly. Nobody lived a more righteous life than Jesus, yet he was persecuted, he was beaten, crucified, and so on. Just because we live for the Lord and we do what's right doesn't mean the world is not going to persecute us because the devil hates us. And Jesus, in fact, said in John 15, look, if you were of the world, the world would love you because the world always loves those that belong to it. But the very fact that the world hates you and persecutes you, as they have done to me, proves that you belong to me that you're on the right team, all right? But then he goes on to admonish us in some practical matters, verse 15 of chapter 3, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. As Christians, we need to always be ready to present our faith to anyone who asks us, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Muslim? or a Buddhist, or even an atheist. We have to have the answer. You, you don't have to be a theologian, but you have to have a working knowledge of what Christianity is all about, the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, you, you need to have a working knowledge, which means we have to study uh, the Word to know what we believe and why. Yeah, that's very important. There's nothing worse than an ill-prepared or ignorant Christian. Remember we talked about this several months ago? <laughs> Uh, you know, quoted out of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul, who I believe wrote Hebrews, said, you have been believers for so long that you ought to be teaching others the word of God. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. We're not talking about new believers now. We expect new believers to act like spiritual babies. They, don't, they, just, they were just born. And they, they need to be given the milk of the word. But 
the writer in Hebrews 5 is saying, look, uh, after, you know, years, I mean, sometimes it's 20 plus years. And I know some Christians who have been saved for all that time that still can't articulate the basic principles of the Christian faith. That's a shame. That's not how it should be. Uh, you don't have to be a pastor or a theologian, but you certainly should be able to teach a Sunday school class of kids, uh, you know, what the Christian life means and what it means to be saved and, and how we get saved and so on. That When Peter said, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, the, the Greek word for defense is apologia. It's a word from which we get the English term apologetics. Apologetics. The word apologetics was often used back then uh, of uh, a defense lawyer presenting a case in a court of law, but it could also be used in a less formal way of uh, making a defense for the Christian faith. And that's what uh, apologetics is all about. It's um, being able to present a case for Christianity. Why, again, you believe what you believe, and so on. The word reason... Uh, always be ready to give a defense for everyone who asks you a reason, is the Greek word lagos, which means word or message. Peter is admonishing us to always be ready to present our case as to why we're Christians. And again, we're not you know, Muslims or atheists even. Uh, why we have put our hope in the Christian faith. Then in 1 Peter 3 verse 16, Peter said, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, so when unbelievers want to call you evil, uh, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So the world can say whatever they want about us, but just make sure it's not true, okay? When they put us down and want to call us evil, fine, call me whatever you want. But they have to make stuff up because there's nothing they can point to that I'm living an evil life in any way. Make sure they're ashamed because they really have nothing to pin on you. Verse 17, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jump over to verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Again, your mind is the constant focus of Satan's attacks because, again, if Satan can control your thinking, he can bring you under his influence. And therefore, we must be careful of what we watch, look at, and listen to. Solomon said it. Guard your heart, but he's talking about your mind. Guard your mind uh, with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's the idea. If Satan is trying to target our thinking, and that's the whole deal, spiritual warfare, if you're an unbeliever, flood your mind with anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible junk to keep you away from a person away from Christ. If you're saved, well, he's lost you, but he wants to neutralize your effectiveness. And so he'll try to recapture your thinking so that you'll try to maybe merge your Christianity with the world. Okay, not that anyone's doing that today, 
You don't find any churches preaching health and wealth and come to Christ and have the biggest house in town and so on. But that's what we're talking about. Those folks have neutralized their effectiveness for the Lord. Why? Because the power of the Christian life is in the cross, which we are to pick up and follow after Jesus, but we have to deny ourselves. You will never be a victorious, empowered believer if you're trying to hold on to the world with one hand and Christ with the other. We have to forsake the old life once and for all. And we do that every day by, by taking up the cross. And, and, and a lot of churches have completely ignored that message. It's no longer in their teaching. It's all about what you can, this formula and eight steps to, to victory and uh, the 10 steps to uh, financial prosperity. It's always this, this deal, okay? You don't hear anything about the cross in a lot of churches today. But again, wh whether they know it or not, the devil has taken their thinking captive because as he controls a person's thinking, he control, he can influence them. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11? Again, we're focusing on the mind as the, as the focal point of spiritual warfare. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul said that Satan is, wants to take advantage of us. He wants to take control of us again, but we're not ignorant. Listen, we're not ignorant of his devices. The Greek is mind games. Paul understood the devil is going to try to influence my thinking. And sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's pretty blatant. But he plays these mind games because, again, he wants to control my thinking. That's why when we get saved, Paul nailed it when he said in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world's way of thinking any longer, now that you're saved, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that, of course, comes from feeding on the Word of God. So, when Peter tells us to arm ourselves, well, it's a command to prepare for battle. But notice what he connects this command to. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. And of course, the mind that Peter is referring to is the mind of Christ, because he was talking about the mind of Christ towards suffering. And that's what Peter is saying. We are in a war. Prepare for battle every day. And the way you prepare for battle, in part, is that you have to have the mind of Christ with regard to suffering. Again, a lot of Christians, they, I guess they know suffering happens to Christians somewhere in the world, but they don't think it should happen to them. They think that God should just bless them and bless them and provide and prosper them, and they are not preparing themselves for battle. William McDonald said, and I quote, we have been considering Christ as an example of one who suffered unjustly. He suffered at the hands of wicked men for the cause of righteousness. Since this was so, his followers, all of us, should arm themselves with the same mind. They should expect to suffer for his name. They should be prepared to endure persecution because they are Christians, end quote. This is very interesting and extremely important for us to understand. And again, we're reviewing, but it's so important, bear with me. We have to understand that our mind or our mindset, our attitude, is also a weapon in the Christian arsenal. A lot of people don't see it that way. Peter's talking about it. Paul talked about it. We have to understand that our mindset, our attitude toward the Christian life, 
is also a weapon in the Christian's arsenal. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, The picture is that of a soldier who puts on his equipment and arms himself for battle. Our attitudes are weapons, and weak or wrong attitudes will lead us to defeat. Outlook determines outcome, and a believer must have the right attitudes if he is to live a right life, end quote. A victorious life is what he's talking about. Look, all believers, we all know the armor of the Christian that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. But few understand that without Christians arming themselves with the proper attitude, none of that matters. It's all worthless. Again, this is critical to our victory in the Christian life over Satan and sin. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. He said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And again, guys, this gets into the mindset or the attitude of a soldier of Christ. You see, before you will be willing, okay, willing, which speaks of attitude, to endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, listen, you must first think of yourself as a soldier of Christ. Now you say, well, isn't that obvious? Maybe to you guys, but not to a lot of Christians in churches today. Because a lot of Christians, honestly, they were bribed into their Christian faith. I'm not sure that many of them really are Christians. You can't bribe somebody into the kingdom by offering them big houses and successful businesses and flashy automobiles. I don't think anyone gets saved with that message. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news that, you know, the gospel, the true gospel... It's all about Jesus Christ, but it also involves, again, taking up our cross and following him. Otherwise, Jesus said, you're not worthy of me. So for a lot of Christians, it isn't about warfare. It isn't about being a soldier of Christ and all that goes into that. You know, the hard work and the uh, self-denial and, and, and so on and so forth. As somebody said, the Christian life today for many is not a battleground. It's a playground. It's all about socializing and enjoying blessings and things like that. Before a person is going to be willing to endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, they first of all have to think of themselves as a soldier of Christ. If you don't think of yourself as a soldier of Christ, fighting in a war against the devil and his demons for the souls of men and women, many of them who are close to you, friends and family, well, you'll never be a good soldier of Jesus Christ or victorious over the enemy. As we have pointed out many times, guys, a soldier can have the finest body armor and weaponry that money can buy but if he or she doesn't have the mindset of a soldier in other words if they uh, refuse to fight a lot of soldiers bolt a-w-o-l they, they refuse to fight okay i saw one guy on tv i forgot if it was the war in iraq or i forgot what it was but he was called into active duty and um i saw him on tv being interviewed i didn't sign up for this i only wanted to get money for school I don't want to go on the battlefield. You know, and so a lot of these soldiers, well, not a lot, but a few, um, they, they don't want to fight, okay? They're a soldier in name only. And uh, if a person who's a Christian doesn't see themselves as a soldier, if they refuse to fight or are unwilling to endure hardships and sufferings for the cause of Christ, then again, their Christianity is for nothing. It's for nothing. We must understand that faithfulness and victory in the Christian life starts, listen, with the way you think. Again, this is warfare. 
Let me say it again. Faithfulness and victory in the Christian life starts with the way you think, the way you perceive what the Christian life is all about. Do you see it as a war? Or do you see it as, I don't know, Club Med Christianity, I guess. I don't know what, what some people think. But a good soldier of Jesus Christ is a person who has only one thing in their mind, to obey Jesus and endure whatever hardship it takes to win the battles he or she faces on a daily basis. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest. When you're living in an environment as a Christian where you're constantly being persecuted, that is the hardest place to be in, but it does weed out the uncommitted. And those folks who are Christians in some of these very difficult places in the world where they're persecuted for their faith and even martyred, they have a depth of faith that I think few of us in America understand. Now, that may change. That may change. We might be in for some very difficult times as Americans. And uh, if that were to happen, I guarantee you churches would be a lot less full. But the ones who would be there would be very, very solid, committed soldiers of Christ. God has given us everything we need to win this war. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. But again, guys, we must have the mind of Christ, a mind that's in love with God, and not a carnal mind in love with the world. A carnal mind, listen to me, is always a recipe for defeat. That's why Peter then adds another thought in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, uh, in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind as we just studied. Then he says this, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Well, we already looked at this. Let me just throw out the three possible interpretations. First of all, he is talking about suffering martyrdom for the cause of Christ, at which time our spirit will be released from our body and sin will no longer be an issue. That's one interpretation. Secondly, Peter is speaking of identifying with Christ's sufferings, uh, suffering by faith, death, burial, resurrection, and how when we do, sin's power will be rendered inoperative in our lives. That's Romans 6, by the way, at which time we'll stop living habitually in sin as we did before we got saved. And that's true, as I just said. When you're suffering, I'm talking about physical persecution for the cause of Christ, well, <laughs> you're so busy clinging to the Lord, sin isn't an issue really, okay? So that could be what part of maybe what Peter had in mind. Or number three, he's talking about how physical suffering and persecution for Christ's sake will cause sin in our lives to have less and less of a hold on us, kind of like the second one. Now, I don't know which one Peter had in mind. I, I relate them to you because they're all biblical. Whatever one Peter had in mind, and maybe in some sense he might have had all three, I don't know. But uh, they're all biblical and should be taken to heart, every one of these. Now, again, in chapter 4, once again, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For you suffered in the flesh as he's from sin. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, unbelievers, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Bottom line, Peter is saying, are we going to choose to fully renounce and walk away from the old life to live totally for the Lord? Or 
Are we going to try to serve two masters, the Lord and the world? And again, there's a lot of Christians who are trying to do that. It's a miserable place to be in. Because as my pastor said many years ago, when you're in that in-between spot, you're not really in the world anymore or of the world. And yet you're not really walking in the spirit. You're kind of in between, trying to serve both worlds. And it's a miserable place to be in because you've got too much of Christ in you to be happy in the world any longer, but you've got too much of the world in you to really be happy and satisfied around dynamic, spiritual believers. So you're kind of in that limbo thing. Terrible place. Verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run. Talk about unbelievers now who think you're weird. That you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. As we talked about a few months ago, it's interesting how unbelievers think. They think it's absolutely normal to drink themselves into an early grave or to sleep around to the point where they maybe contract some um, incurable STD. That behavior is absolutely normal to them. But if one of their own gets saved who used to do those things and now he or she is going to church and reading the Bible and not drinking anymore, taking drugs, sleeping around, they think that person's a Bible-thumping weirdo. This is the way the world thinks. So here's a little advice. Because I know Christians who say, well, I'm just trying to be friends with the guys at work. I don't really drink, but they invite me to come out afterwards for a beer and I just maybe have a soda. I've met Christians who say, well, I just have one beer. Just let them know I'm one of the guys still. I'm not, you know, some holy roller. Well, let me just tell you this. You can't be a friend of the world because then you're no longer a servant of Christ. And I'm telling you right now, you think you're trying to just show them that, you know, you don't judge them and you're just one of the guys still, but you love the Lord. Behind your back, they're going to call you a hypocrite because that's all they want to do is prove they can't handle the light. So all they want to do is, you know, get you to come out and have a beer because in their mind, they can write off everything. You're a hypocrite, say. He talks about going to church, but he's out there at the bar with us drinking. So don't go that route. Stay separate. You, you, can, you can love people. You don't have to be uh, condemning or judgmental. You can love the Lord. They invite you to come out for a drink. Thank you very much. I appreciate you including me, but, you know, that, that belongs to the old life. And I had too much trouble with alcohol in the past. I, I don't, I'm not going down that route anymore. And that's not who I am anymore. Now, they may look down, and you probably will. Because, again, darkness can't handle the light. Your life becomes a point of conviction. But when they're alone, in a group, it's all different group dynamic, right? But when they're alone and going through a difficult time, they're going to seek you out. Because you are living what you believe. And they can see it. You're not a hypocrite. So that's how you handle that, in my mind. Verse 5, Peter said, they will give an account. Now, these folks that put you down and think you're crazy and they go on living in sin, well, there's a day of judgment coming. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The living, in my mind, is a reference to those who will be alive on the earth when Jesus returns, now you can read Revelation 19 and you know how he comes back and so on. When he comes back, the tribulation period now will, will be ending because the Lord will end it. And there will be people on the earth who are both believers and unbelievers. Of course, the believers have been hiding out. Many of them were martyred. But many others are going to hide and escape the wrath of the Antichrist. And when the Lord comes back, he's going to judge 
the living. In other words, he will judge believers worthy of entering into the kingdom and they will be allowed to enter in. He will judge unbelievers as unworthy of the kingdom and they will be cast alive into Hades, which is the temporary place of incarceration until the great white throne judgment. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. The dead are those who died in their sins, but will be resurrected at one point after the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, who will be resurrected at one point to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And as we just described and explained, the folks that were alive on the earth who were unbelievers when he returned and were cast into Hades, they will also be resurrected to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment for unbelievers. They think they're going to have their day in court, present their case, and they're confident, many of them, that they'll be able to talk the Lord into getting them out of of hell, okay, which is coming. Um, Not going to happen, okay, not going to happen. Now, when you tell people these things, well, let's be honest, because we are a Christian nation, post-Christian, but, you know, we have a Christian heritage. Most people in America believe in God. Now, they believe in the concept of God. I'm not saying they believe in him the way we do, all right? But most people believe in God. But what they believe, for the most part, is that he is a God of love who won't judge people, except maybe for the worst criminals, you know, the uh, mass murderers and the worst of society. He may judge them. The rest of them, I'm a good person. Everyone thinks they're a good person, okay? But Proverbs says that. Every man proclaims each his own goodness. Well, everybody thinks that they're basically a good person, right? If anybody's going to hell, it's that guy, not me. Because I'm a good person, right? So God won't judge and send people to hell. He's a loving God. He would never do that. If they even believe in hell. A lot of people don't even believe in hell anymore. And because of this, because they believe God is just a God of love, and he's not going to send anyone to hell, really, Because they believe this, there is no fear of God in their hearts. In other words, there's no fear of coming judgment. Therefore, nothing to keep their sinful desires in check. Think about that. People say, we shouldn't be preaching about hell. You shouldn't be scaring people into into heaven. Really? I mean, Jude said, save some with compassion. Save others with fear. I don't care what gets a person into heaven. I mean, if I get to literally scare the hell out of them by talking about God's judgment, that's what we need to do. Now, if you come across somebody and start talking about the Lord, yeah, I really, I believe in him. I believe I'm just a terrible person. I believe I'm going to hell. I've done so many bad things. All right, take it easy. You know, you don't have to scare. I mean, they are, they're already beating themselves up pretty good. You come around with your arm around and like, okay, we're all sinners. But God so loved us as sinners that he gave his only begotten. So with compassion, you save some. Others, a lot of hard-hearted people out there, don't be afraid to dangle them over the fires of hell a little bit. Okay? But look, there's a lot of wisdom in this. I mean, Proverbs says in Proverbs 9, 10, in chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
when you fear the Lord, what, what, what am I fearing about God? Coming judgment. Hell. When a person really believes in God and that there is a day of judgment coming, that is going to contain their evil desires. That's going to you know, put a chain, really, on them running amok. Right? In fact, the Bible says in Romans 3.18, it says of those who live wickedly that, listen, they do it because there is no fear of God before their eyes. As our nation has gotten progressively secular, it's gotten increasingly wicked, hasn't it? If you read some of the founding fathers in just that period of time, it's interesting, Ben Franklin was not a Christian. I mean, George Whitfield worked like crazy on this guy to get him saved. Maybe he did before he died. But I know Ben Franklin, for most of his life, probably to the end, was not a Christian. Yet, here was a man who could quote the Bible, who stands on the floor of the Constitutional Convention and says, look, if a sparrow can't fall from the, from the sky without God knowing about it, how much more do we think we can cause a nation to rise without his providence? He's preaching. He knew the Bible better than a lot of Christians know it today. My point is, back then, even unbelievers had a godliness about them. Because pulpits, as de Tocqueville noticed, were aflame with righteousness. Pulpits were aflame. The word of God was being proclaimed. All of it. Not just the good stuff, the mercy, and the love of God. That's wonderful. We need to talk about that. But preachers back then were proclaiming, Coming judgment, hell, for those who refuse to get their lives right with God. They don't see that today. In fact, when I read the news, and I see the level of immorality and debauchery going on in our country, it reminds me, I realize, that we are a nation that no longer fears God. And guys, listen to me. Much of the blame for this can be laid at the door of the clergy in this country who don't believe in, or who do believe but refuse to preach the reality of coming judgment. When Christian leaders downplay hell or flat out deny it exists, they're not helping people. Oh, we don't want to scare people. We want them to come to church and feel God's love. If you love somebody, wouldn't you want to tell them the truth? If they were on their way to hell, wouldn't you want to tell them that in the name of love this idea that we just you know I, well, I could say a lot but I'm not going to the idea that when people come to church what they want to hear is feel good messages that, that's showing them God's love no it isn't because if that person who hears all these feel good man centered messages and never hears the, the whole truth if they were to die one day in their sins on the day of judgment, as they look over from the line going into hell at their pastor, I'm sure that they're going to say, why didn't you tell me the truth? I went to your church. I trusted you to give me the word of God. You didn't tell me the truth. And it promotes. You're not going to tell people about judgment coming. It promotes a laxness towards sin. And the more people then sin, well, the more they're going to be held accountable on the day of judgment for. Look, God's judgment is coming. Make no mistake about it. The good news is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus wouldn't have to go to hell. 
but would have everlasting life. Well, verse 6, Peter went on to say, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now be careful, as we talked about this a few months ago, we need to be careful how we interpret this verse. Remember the context. Peter was reminding his readers of the Christians who had been martyred for their faith. And this, I believe, is what he means when he said, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. In other words, those who are now dead at the time Peter was writing this epistle, but were alive when the gospel was preached to them, of course. See, some people misinterpret this and, and come away with the idea that what Peter is saying is that even after people die, they get another chance. No, that's not true. And we talked about Hebrews 9.27, which says it's, it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. There's no second chances. So we know he's not talking about that. And Peter is saying, look, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who have been martyred. Thank God they, it was preached to them, and they received Christ, and they were killed for their faith, but they're going to be in heaven with us forever. That's the idea. And so in the context, Peter's admonishing Christians to also arm, arm themselves with the genuine hope of the reality of eternal life. Is that really our hope? Is that really our hope? Well, if you lived in some third world country where you couldn't drink clean water and you were starving and persecuted for your faith and so on, believe me, you would be rejoicing in the knowledge that Jesus would come at any moment and rescue you. In America, we have a lot of blessings. And you have a lot of blessings, a lot of food to eat, clean water to drink, nice house to live in. Pretty much every night when I crawl into bed, and I say my prayers before I fall asleep, one of the first things I do is I pray, Lord, thank you for a soft bed, clean sheets, and a house where I have cooling and heating. Thank you, Lord, for these blessings we take for granted, don't we? Peter was dealing with a lot of people who were really being persecuted for their faith. And he's trying to encourage them to keep their eyes on Jesus. He's trying to tell them that life is rough, but the persecution won't be forever. And someday, all these ungodly people that were persecuting them are going to stand before the Lord and give an account. So they are to keep their eyes on eternal life in heaven, Christians, which will give them, listen, the right perspective as they suffer for christ here on earth i can endure it because i know this isn't my home i know someday if i die for my faith so be it but it's just going to release me from this persecution this body of death and i'm going to go right into the presence of the lord where there is joy forevermore and so that's what peter's encouraging his readers to understand verse 7 but the end of all things is at hand therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers when peter says that the end of all things is at hand he is admonishing his readers to hang in there listen to hang in there in the face of severe persecution they were experiencing because the end of man's rebellion against god and the persecution of god's people at the hands of the wicked was about over now you say, well, it was 2,000 years ago. It's still going on. Was Peter mistaken about the time frame? He seems to think it's going to happen. Well, first of all, as we're going to see in just a moment, no, he's not talking, talking about a length of time. Although he does say in his second epistle, a day with the Lord 
It's like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So God's outside of time, okay? So when he says something is going to happen quickly, it might be a couple thousand years. But it's going to happen, right? Peter says, look, the, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, all the rebellion against God and the persecution of God's people is, by the wicked is about over. For, of course, we just said it's all going to come to an end with Christ's return when he will judge his enemies, Revelation 19, and establish his kingdom. But even before that, Jesus will come for his church, call it the rapture, and evacuate his people off the earth before his judgment is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world, Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Uh, the Greek verb translated is at hand, okay, is at hand. But the end of all things is at hand, and he's talking about Christ's return, the rapture. Uh, the, the term is at hand means it could occur at any moment. It's imminent. Therefore, Christians are to live with watchful vigilance and anticipation as well as faithful service to our King. So as you're watching, you're serving, Okay. As you're watching, you're serving. 1 Peter 4, 7, the NIV translates it this way, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded. Again, don't be intoxicated with the things of this world, right? Messes up your mind, you're thinking. And will bring you under Satan's control. He says, don't do that. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray, among other things. Guys, look, if we really believe that the rapture could happen at any time, especially since the signs of Jesus' second coming are everywhere. We know that the rapture precedes the second coming of Christ by seven years at least. Well, it should have an impact on the way we live and especially on the way we pray. I mean, if you're a Christian and you've been blessed with a lot of money, your prayers and everything's going great and your family's being blessed, your prayers might be at times kind of shallow. But if all of a sudden one of your children was diagnosed with a very very serious illness or your spouse it changes the way you pray doesn't it it changes what is most important and it isn't material things and as christians we are living in a blessed country that could have a downside it could cause our prayers to become shallow at times self-focused when we really need to be praying for loved ones who don't know the Lord, praying for ourselves that we would be given the grace by God to live for him in these last days and not waver and fall back into the old lifestyle and so on. Verse 8, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. The word for love is agape, which is an all-consuming, unconditional love mostly associated with God's love in the New Testament. The word fervent is a word that pictures an athlete straining to reach the goal. It speaks of effort, like an athlete in training, uh, eagerness, intensity, and so on. In a way, the Christian needs to, listen, exercise God's love. Now, talking about exercising a muscle, the muscle grows stronger and it gets larger. When you exercise God's love, it grows stronger and becomes bigger. God's love, if it's to grow stronger and stronger, must be exercised in our daily lives. And you know what that means, guys? Because God wants the love he's poured into your heart, Romans 5.5, 5, his agape love. He wants it to grow stronger. 
How does he exercise our love, the love he's given us? Well, by sending difficult people into our lives. Think about that. Tomorrow when you go to work and you are confronted with that co-worker that just gets under your skin. God uses difficult people to force us to exercise his love. And when you do, an interesting thing happens. You become more like Jesus. You, you feel closer to God. But you begin to have feelings for this unbeliever because you can't love somebody with God's love and not have feelings for that person. This doesn't, you know, we say, well, when I feel, when I feel love for them, I'll, I'll do nice things for them. God says, no, you do nice things for them, you exercise my love, and you're going to have feelings for them. The feelings always come as a byproduct for loving those who are unlovable. Well, listen to me, we're, we're done. Christian love isn't just giving. We talk about, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Got me, right? Christian love isn't just giving, it's also forgiving. As Peter said, love will cover, God's love will cover a multitude of sins. In saying this, Peter was quoting Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Guys, listen. This is not saying that God's love within us condones sin. That's not what Peter is saying. That's not what the Bible ever says. God's love never condones sin, but rather his love is grieved when people sin which hurts them and those around them. God's love doesn't condone sin. What Peter is saying is God's love covers sins. What does that mean? Well, this describes believers who are lovingly overlooking the sins others commit against them and not spreading them around in the form of gossip. God's love prays. Uh, the old Keith Green song, you can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you when I'm on my knees. And that's just God's love in operation, okay? In operation. That even if somebody does something wrong to us, we don't hate them, we don't retaliate, we don't spread it around in the form of gossip. We love them, we pray for them, we forgive them, and we try to help them in any way we can. That's how you love your enemies. You do for them what they need because that's showing God's love. All right, then verse 9. Peter said, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, and he's talking about the gifts now. If anyone has speaking gifts, that would be pastors, evangelists, and so on, teachers. Uh, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, God willing, next week we will pick up verse 12. There's not really much left, but that doesn't mean I can't stretch it out. So, uh, I think a couple, three weeks we should be done. And then on into Second Peter, which, a lot of end time stuff there. A lot of end time stuff. So, uh, come on back, and uh, by God's grace, we'll, we'll finish and let the Spirit uh, minister. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, Peter's whole thing is to remind us of how 
we were born at one point of the Spirit. We accepted Christ. When that happened, we became heirs of God, joint heirs of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that can't ever fade away. It's indestructible. Now that we have all that waiting for us in heaven, here's how we are to live while on the earth. And he goes on to talk about this for numerous chapters. Loving enemies, loving people that put us down, that try to hurt us by our good conduct in Christ, our love, hopefully winning them to Jesus. But knowing that someday evildoers will stand before you. Their day is coming. This idea that people can persecute and kill your children with impunity, that's ridiculous. They will stand before you someday, Lord Jesus, the one who will judge the living and the dead as you establish your kingdom. So, Lord, we just pray that you'll give us grace to be the Christians you want us to be. We need your strength, of course. We can't do it in our own strength. But, Lord, give us grace that we might walk with you. And your Spirit may empower us and use us, that we might be lights in the darkness, that we might bear fruit for the glory of God. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.